Bill Nicholson was often described as the heart of Sound One. As managing director from 1979 to 2001, alongside Sound One co-founder Alicia Birnbaum, Bill set the tone, organized the deals, and orchestrated the cross-traffic between staff and clients that allowed the New York filmmaking scene to thrive. At its peak, Sound One commanded six floors in the Brill Building and took in over 85% of post-production film business in New York, all under the watch of Bill Nicholson. Not far from Bill's office, Sybil Brown, the receptionist from 1985 to 2005, sat at the front desk with a vase of fresh flowers that she brought in every day. She was a reliable source of warmth and humanity with an uncanny ability to locate people by phone in crucial life moments and was consistent in trying to connect talent with projects she knew needed help. In this episode, staff and clients remember their interactions with Bill Nicholson and Sybil Brown and share their stories about how Bill and Sybil, in their own ways, played a role not only in shaping the working environment of Sound One, but how they shaped people's lives. You know, Sound One became this thing that didn't exist in New York because there was no place to get a film done in New York. I don't think it could have happened without a guy like Bill being there. He had this magic Rubik's Cube in his head for figuring out how to get everybody in. And he didn't pit us against each other. He made us all feel like we were all going to be taken care of. And I think that's the, that really makes us feel like the New York way of filmmaking is a collaborative process. This Frame by Frame podcast is one of a multi-part series on the era of New York's Sound One, 1968 to 2012. Frame by Frame is presented by Motion Picture Editors Guild and the Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at at postny. The host for this episode is Harbor Picture Company and Decibel 11. The voices in the Bill and Sybil episode include picture editors Nancy Novak, Stuart Levy, and Andy Monchin, supervising sound editors Chick Ciccolini, Damian Volpe, and Steve Bourne, music editors Sherry Johansson and Missy Cohen, post-production supervisor Susan Lazarus, re-recording mixers Dominic Tavella, Lee Dichter, Tom Fleischman, and Peter Wagner, ADR engineer David Bolton, assistant to Bill and Nisselson Stephanie Sagraponti, head of the transfer department Rocky Tortorella, Transfer Engineer Hector Cordero, Technical Engineer Pat Smith, and Studio Manager Jay Rubin. Clients have to trust you. People think it's about equipment. It is absolutely not about equipment. You have to have equipment, but you have to have somebody that clients connect with. And you could literally be the best mixer in the world. You could have mixed the Ten Commandments, and I'm not talking about the movie. You could have mixed the original. <laughs> um, but if you don't connect with the clients and the clients don't believe you and you're not willing to go the extra mile when something's wrong, then it doesn't matter how much equipment you have. It doesn't matter how much real estate you have. It only matters that clients trust you and clients trusted Bill. And when people talk about that, you know, Sound One became this thing that didn't exist in New York because... There was no place to get a film done in New York. I don't think it could have happened without a guy like Bill being there. Sound One was like the mecca. You know, it was the thing that you dreamed of working there. Dom was there, and Lee was there, Riley, Michael Berry, and, you know, we were mixing the films ourselves, non-union. But when you got lucky, Bill would offer you, you know, a chance to mix there at an affordable rate. And uh, most notably, I would say, from my own perspective, I did my first mix with a young mixer named Rob Fernandez. And I think it was one of his first mixes, 93 or 94. And we're still working together 
30 years later. We just finished the film a couple weeks ago, so. Bill, as everyone knows, gave everybody, a lot of independent filmmakers, their first chance, a lot of them. I remember, because I was probably sitting right there, when Michael Moore first came for Roger and Me. And Michael Moore comes in, and he, nobody knew who Michael Moore was. He wasn't anybody, really, right, at the time. And he comes in, and, you know, we've given him all these discounts and stuff like that, you know, typical the sound one deal or whatever. And he comes in and with his head's baseball cap and he sits with Bill and he says, you know, Bill, I want to make sure you're not going to fuck me over. But whoever mixed it, it was one of their first. Peter Wagner. Okay. And maybe it was one of his first big gigs. And uh, so he goes to Bill. Peter Wagner, does he have any experience? Like, what has he done before? And Bill says, in typical Bill fashion, who are you? What's your experience? Have you ever directed anything before? I didn't hear about this. That's Bill. That's basically happened with, like, 20 other people who are now seriously famous. That was Roger's deal. I hear Bill in my head a lot as I do my day-to-day -day work. I hear him saying, did you follow up? Did you call those people? Did you make sure that they, they said it was going to be there? Did you make sure it's there? I mean, I hear Bill in my head a lot uh, through my day-to-day -day work at Technicolor. The thing about Bill is Bill would encourage me to, how would he go? The best way to learn is if you make a mistake. That's what was Bill taught me. And Bill always encouraged me to make a decision and do it. He would never agree with my decision, but the fact that I went ahead and I did it on my own, because he'd come back and he'd go, what do I have to do everything? You know, so the one thing about Bill is the guy taught me everything that I know uh, how to deal with a client, but he gave me the opportunity to grow. He made the path very easy for me. Um, my first job was with uh, Tommy and Skip. I was working on Silence of the Lambs. It was a hell of a first job. Yeah. I learned a lot, um, but then I realized that job was going to come to an end and I needed to find my next <laughs> job. And to get my chops up, I was cutting student films at night. And Tommy, I think it was you who said, find Bill Nisselson and get him your resume. And I was like, he's like, he's a guy, he's got glasses and he whines a lot. And I was like, okay. So I went to the eighth floor and I listened and I heard the voice and I said, are you Billy? You know, and he took, he took my resume. He's kind of like, can I keep this? I said, sure, you can keep that. So I called him and I said, you know, I'm, I got this student film. I'm doing it for nothing. He said, I got a room for you. He stuck me in a room at Sound One and he did this for me for years. Yep. And I always like to say that he gave me my career when he gave me a chance because he really made it possible for me to do the shorts and then to do these independent features, and I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, well, and I'm so remember, grateful to him. If everybody remembers, if you came to work early or if you stayed late, there was Bill in his office talking usually to a client mm -hmm. and, and as a mentor kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they're for hours at a time. You know, another thing that was good about Sound One that I really appreciated was that we didn't have the nine to six routine. We, we were able to negotiate with Bill to do films whenever it was convenient for our clients, one of whom was Jim Jarmish. Jim went to work from six o'clock in the evening till three o'clock at night. And it was, it was really, especially when we came time to the mix, 
Tom had to be at the uh, at the studio in order to start from six o'clock on. What was great about it is that we didn't have the interruptions of the phone. We were able to do our work nonstop. Dom definitely, uh, you know, we called him the dominator because he he definitely took the the the, the bull by the horns basically and and make it happen. It was a lot of fun. And that was one of the things that I liked about Sound One is that they were not rigid in terms of, you know, setting up their time schedules and what have you. They did whatever was good for the for the client. That flexibility was huge. We, we were always negotiating with Bill to get the mix time, and he always found a way to make it work. You know, you knew that if you needed to remix something and you needed two days with Tommy or Lee and, and they were in the middle of Marty's thing, well, they could do something, and he goes, oh, I'll get you Friday and Saturday. Can you get you know? And he always managed to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had enough mixers to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, mixers. It was also an attitude. It wasn't. There's so many other places. They they're like, you know, no, you can't have it. You know, they don't care. Well, that was a good thing about Bill too. He was very protective because there was on more than one occasion, as you were saying, I'd end up working on three jobs at once, like you know, like Monday through Friday, and then I'd come on Saturday and do another job, and Sunday do another job, and. He would come around Sunday night and like, you know, kick us out of the studio. He says, you, you got to get some sleep. You got to, he protected the mixers, which I thought was just wonderful because he was looking out for us in a way that's very appreciative. After you did 80 hours of work. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but, but still, but still, you know. He was also looking out for the, for the clients because he had this magic Rubik's Cube in his head for figuring out how to get everybody in. And he made you feel that your pressures, all the temp mixes that you had to suddenly do, and he would find a room for you, he'd find a mixer for you. You'd say, I, you'd think it was impossible, and he'd say, it's going to happen, we're going to get it done. And somehow, I don't know how he was able to to figure out where where everyone could go. But he made you feel like you were the most important client, and he didn't pit us against each other. He made us all feel like we were all going to be taken care of. And I think that's the, that really makes us feel like the New York way of filmmaking is a collaborative process as opposed to the, a more competitive scenario that you have in Los Angeles. We thought that was the way it was. We didn't realize that it, a lot of it came down from the management of, from Bill Nisselson and Alicia. I went out to work in L.A. once on a, on a job many years later, and the uh, supervising sound editor uh, took me aside and said, you know, you're making everybody out here look bad. <laughs> and, and I think that had to do with the fact that we, we cared more, I think, about our community and the work that we were doing. In L.A., it was a different vibe. It was more punch the clock. It's a factory town. It's all very highly unionized. And there was a roster that we didn't have to worry about. So it was a different work ethic. And I think that that's reflected in all of these stories. Bill was always incredibly encouraging. I mean, he was absolutely a mentor to me and did make my career. And when uh, my first supervising sound editor jobs came at his high recommendation, or maybe insistence, <laughs> to the, to the uh, clients, and uh, yeah, there was nobody like him. I had an office there probably for eight years, did a lot of different things, and Bill sort of guided me and 
after people would come in and say that they wanted to mix and, you know, he'd try to move the schedule around. As soon as they left, he'd turn to me, he goes, eh, if they're ready to mix next Sunday, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> I have a, I have a, this is Rocky. I have a quick Bill story and a quick Mel story. Um, and they both reaffirmed my assumption that Salmon was my home. Early on, I was working the machine room for Mel on a late night mix, and I screwed something up. And he called me on the phone and yelled and screamed and yelled and screamed. And about a half an hour later, he came into the back, and I thought I was going to get my ass reamed again. And he said, by the way, I didn't mean anything when I screamed at you. It was just for the client. <laughs> I, so I said, okay, I'm home. Ten years later, I had an argument with Bill. He said, hey, if you don't like it, go home. A couple of hours later, somebody went into Bill's office and said, do you know where Rocky is? And Bill put his head in his hands and said, I'll call him at home. And he called me. He said, you went home, didn't you? I said, you told me to. He said, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, you'll see me tomorrow. I knew I was home. I had that exact same story with Bill, actually. I, I went, I, I was like, that's it. I'm going home. And I, I skipped one whole day. And the next, like the 24 hours later at 7 a.m., he called me up on the phone. Steph, come back. And I came back. It was Bill and I had a father-daughter relationship. Um, he was definitely like a father to me. I mean, when Bill passed away, it was it was very tough, actually. It's still tough. Um, I get choked up talking about it now, 20 years later or 15 years later. Bill was a dad to many of us. Um, he was a dad. He was a psychotherapist. He was a money lender. The very first ATM transaction I ever did, Bill's, Bill gave me his, his actual ATM card. That was how I learned to use an ATM. He, gave, he was always lending me money. Um, and I'm sure to this day there are people who still owe Bill money. I know everybody's talking about Bill, and I know I, I owe a lot of jobs to Bill, but I believe I owe my career to Sybil. Mm. Because I would come in with absolutely no experience. I came in on my resume. She knew me because David Novak, who's my husband, was already working at Sound One, and I had been working for Broadway theater producers, and I was really unhappy. So I would come in, and Sybil would say, Nancy, <laughs> go to the seventh floor because I think they're looking for, they're just starting and I think they're looking for a crew and maybe they'll hire you. And I'd come in two weeks later still with nothing on my resume and she'd say, oh, try room 307, they're really nice. And she would tell me who everybody was and I would take the little, she had the phone sheet, she'd make me a copy of the room sheet with the phone numbers and she'd write down everybody everybody who was in each room and circle the ones who she thought might be hiring or were super nice and that they were the ones that I should try and get a job with. And finally, Suzanne Pillsbury said to me, I can't pay you, but I'll teach you everything I know. And I said, oh, okay. It was better than everybody else saying, I'm really sorry, we needed somebody last week. And or Sybil, we're all crewed yeah. up. She was the gatekeeper. She, she was, was the gatekeeper. Sybil man. would basically, the amazing thing about her is she learned everything about everybody that worked there. She knew who called you. She knew who your wife was, <laughs> who your girlfriend was, or whoever. And she would always warn you ahead of time. I'll never forget one time she called, she called the shop. She says, Patrick, 
someone is calling you, but I think it's a bill collector. <laughs> I was telling me I'm not here, all right? So <laughs> She was amazing. Sybil once, uh, yes. once called me at home. I wasn't working, and she said, Missy, your dad is looking for you. <laughs> I said, I said, okay, I'll, I'll call him. And I called my dad, and the line was busy, so I tried back two minutes late, because there was no call waiting. Called back, and... I said, Dad, I heard you were looking for me. He's like, who's that lady? <laughs> she just called me and said that she called you to tell you to call me. So she was absolutely the gatekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> One time she called the shop. She called the shop. She says, there's a plumber here. I said, a plumber? I don't remember us calling a plumber. She says, well, please come up. And it turned out to be Christopher Plumber. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you want to say where Sybil came from? Well, Sybil worked. She she was you know right out of high school, I think, and then she had she had learned how to type, or went to typing school, and then she came looking for a job for my at my father's company, over at Photomag. This is back probably in nineteen you know seventy eight, seventy nine, maybe even earlier. And when I left Photomag and came over to Sound One. It was, there was disarray. People didn't know what people were and this and that and everything. And I said to Alicia, I said, listen, you need a receptionist. People come off the elevator on the eighth floor, they don't know where to go. So I said, yeah, I said, listen, there's a woman who used to work at, you know, had worked at our place, but they're closing up there. Let me, let me see if, you know, she can come over. And, and he said, sure, let her come over and I'll talk to her. And boom, next day he hired her. Then they, then, a couple, then they had a little table for her, and then within a couple of years, they built this little beautiful area for her. She used to come in every morning with fresh flowers and this and that, and everybody. Right. And she really was the heart of that place. She, she knew everybody. She knew everybody, and it was, it was really wonderful to have her there. She was there for a long, long time. She, like some others, loved being there. It wasn't just like, hi, I'm the receptionist, and you know, be doing her nails and quit and like hating her job. She loved being there. She loved the social aspect of hanging out with all these people. And being who we all were, we're all very nice to each other. We're not dismissive of one another at all. You know, you had to, in order to exist, you need to be friendly with everybody around you. So, and it, and it wasn't fake either. So you, you, everybody was friendly to her, you know, and she just would love that. And, and she just loved, you know, the stars would walk by too to do ADR sessions whatnot. She was thrilled to death. But she liked it so much that she, you know, one of these odd people got into her job. She knew where you were. There are hundreds of people running through this building where they sort of have general uh, general extensions, um, <clears throat> but they'd go missing. And But she'd have some clue as to where they were hanging out and find them. <laughs> she would call me outside of Sound One when there was some call. Do you have a call from someone? She'd find me, like, <laughs> on my cell, cell phone, phone somewhere. No, but it was before even cell phones. She'd call me at home phones. or something and be like... And, and she would... And she it wasn't just me. She did this with all kinds of people. She would somehow have a sense of where you were and find you. <laughs> it was the oddest thing. Um, but and, but not in at all a negative way. It was always to be helpful, and you know she knew whether the call would or something or whatever was important enough for you to hear it, that you could make a choice. And um, she was awesome at that. When when Bobby he went to get my engagement ring in Philadelphia, and this was before cell phones, and I was not working at the time. I guess I was in between jobs, and I called Sybil, and I was like, "Can I talk to Bobby?" She said, well, Jerry, he, he went out on a run. He worked in the machine room where he was an engineer. He was doing both at the time. And I was like, 
but he's not a messenger anymore. She's like, he just, Bill asked him to go do something. <laughs> I was like, okay. I called at least like 10 times that day. She's like, oh, he's out on another run. <laughs> All day long. Bobby comes home finally. I was like, what were you? Were like a messenger today? He's like, yeah. I found out later he was in Philadelphia. <laughs> and we, there were no cell phones, so it wasn't like uh, There was no tracking him down, <laughs> yeah. And Sybil did a really good job. But she's like, well, they just they just really needed... They, they didn't have a messenger that day. <laughs> I'm going to put a damper on this. She called me. I left Sound 1. I left Sound 1 um, in 99. I was living in Brussels. I was shooting a documentary when, in 2001, Sybil called me uh, to, to tell me, I, well, first of all, I, I was amazed that she found me. I had no idea, I mean, who she gave her, her that number. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she did it. But she announced to me that uh, Bill Nissenson had died, in fact. So what I heard from Jim Gardner was that he said, oh, I should have gone to the doctor. And then he laid down on his desk that Bill had been having some pains, some chest pains, and he mentioned it to Jim, but he thought it was something he had eaten that wasn't really agreeing with him. You know, and that's all sort of the mechanics of how it happened, but I really do, I, I really do remember the just, you know, a place that was normally buzzing from the moment you walked in the doors of the Brill Building, this place was still. It was calm water. There was nothing go. I mean, and it wasn't just, like I said, it just wasn't when you walked on the ninth floor and you could see people with sad faces. It was the, I felt like it was the entire building. It was, we all knew something had, I mean, people just knew something had happened. And, you know, it's always weird when somebody dies. Um, but somebody who, you know, really is the life of that organization at that moment I don't think there was anybody in the building who would not have said, oh, I wanted to go talk to Bill that day, you know, prior to the day he, I mean, the day he died. I don't think there's anybody who wouldn't have said, oh, yeah, I was going to stop by and say something to Bill about this because that's what everybody did. And now it was just, it was literally a changed environment. It was like day to night. It was crazy. And, you know, the turnout at his memorial uh, was huge. And it was a lot of people that he'd said no to and a lot of people that he'd hung up the phone on. And you could tell that these people, including me and Pete and Sherry and everybody else involved, anybody that was there really respected him. And most of us really loved him. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg please for your sympathy, I don't mind because you mean that to me ain't too proud to be sweet darling please don't leave me girl ain't too proud to be baby baby please don't leave me girl it was a watershed moment it was a real change you know the the company shifted not like I said not in a negative way but watching people try and do what he did it was it was impossible for anybody to do what he did and i gotta say jim and jay did a great job stephanie everyone else that was involved did a great job but it was built yeah
This podcast series, The Sound One Era, 1968 to 2012, is co-produced by Sherry Johansson and Isabel Sederni. The sound engineers were Peter Wagner, Bobby Johansson, and Mike Rivera. In New York, I'm your host, Isabel Sederni, and this is Frame by Frame.